According to Facebook, I am a rising figure. I found this out a week or so ago because of the posts, the interactions, all of that. People decided in Facebook that I was a rising figure. I met those qualifications. Now, here's what's interesting is, first of all, the rising figure is related to my professional page, my public figure, if you would. It is Tony Manier, comma, PhD. What I find fascinating about becoming a public figure is that you can lose it. Unless I continue making posts that people interact with, they will remove that from my Facebook page. I will no longer be a rising figure. I, I do wonder, though, will they instead see me as a downward spiraling figure? Will that now appear on my Facebook page? I don't know. But I do know that when it comes to social media, there is a great deal of pressure to get as many followers and likes as possible. If you want to be a social media influencer, you have to be posting all the time. And I am curious and do wonder what impact that has upon our self-esteem, our sense of self-confidence. Can we put out on social media who we really are? Or do we put on a persona? Which one is more likely to get the likes and follows followers that are needed in order to be an influencer? So social media, it's impacting all of our lives. And I truly believe that it impacts our sense of self our self-esteem, our sense of self-confidence, how we see ourselves. Because how we see ourselves is important. And going with that, and perhaps at times even just as important, and hopefully not, but yet perhaps how others view us seems to be very important. Now, how other people see us that can be either real or imagined. We can imagine how other people perceive us. For example, you are in line to check out. You have your items. You're waiting. And the cashier is very curt with you, very short. And you wonder, what did I do wrong? What about me made them upset? Well, it may have nothing to do with us. But in our minds, we imagine how other peoples might see us. But then on the other side, how others see us can be very real. When people criticize us, when people are harsh to us, that impacts our sense of self, our sense of self-esteem. Now, early on in life, a lot of how we see ourselves was influenced by our parents, how we viewed ourselves was often through the lens of our parents because we had not yet developed our own sense of self. And so we learn that through our parents and our brain begins to develop and we have this sense of self, of who we are. 
as we continue to age, another group comes into play and has a significant impact upon how we see ourselves, and that is our peers. Our peers can dramatically impact how we see ourselves. You're with a group of friends. I remember this in, in being in elementary school. I would say something, wear something, and then the people's reaction to that, my friend's reaction to that, could have a dramatic impact upon how I felt about myself or if I was ever going to wear that piece of clothing again. Again, as we grow and as we mature and as we age, that sense of worrying about what other people think about us and how other people view us, it continues to broaden because our sphere of people that we know in our sphere of influence continues to broaden. So now it's not just parents, your close friends, your peers, but now it's even a larger scope of people that we continually have to think about when it comes to how other people see us. Now, it's important to remember, a lot of times our sense of self is wrapped up in how other people see us. If that is the case, and I believe it is, how important is it how God thinks of you? I mean, if we think about all these other individuals and how they see us and the impact upon it has upon us, what about God? Does God's view of you impact you? Does it shape your sense of self? How do you believe God sees you? We're going to talk about that right after this break. If you grew up in a religious setting, perhaps one of the messages you heard from a very young age as a toddler was that God loves you. God loves you. Perhaps if you grew up a Christian, you even remember the song, Jesus loves me, this I know. Over and over, Jesus loves me, this I know. As a child growing up in a Christian home, that was a message I heard again and again. God loves me. Jesus loves me. But there was another message that followed. The older I got, the message began to be, not only does God love me, but there are times when I will do wrong, what is often called a sin. And those wrong deeds, those sins, can be against God when I, I mean, against another human being. So if I hurt another human being, that would be wrong and that would be a sin. But that action against another human being is also, I was taught, an action against God. So if I get angry at someone and I was to punch them, not only did I hurt them as a sin, doing wrong toward them, but also that would be seen as being a sin against God. Now all of a sudden, my idea that God loves me was somewhat tempered by this idea that I could do things that would upset God. And in order to be restored to God, I would need to make atonement. I would need to make it right. 
then as I continued to grow and mature, not only did I get the message that God loves me, not only did I get the message that sin against another human being and against God is basically basically anytime I do wrong, the third message that came with that was based upon the idea of original sin. The idea being that everything about me, everything about you is flawed. Your thoughts, inadequate. Your feelings, irrelevant and even misleading. Your impulses, your drives, instead of being a natural part of who you are, are often seen as being selfish and destructive. Why? Because of original sin. This is especially seen, and I want to highlight that when it comes to emotions. A therapist at Spokane Christian Counseling by the name of Jill Howard, who is a licensed mental health counselor, she says in one of her articles that all emotions are stained by sin. Again, this ties back to that whole idea of original sin. Original sin equals in our emotions are now seen as being stained by that original sin. She goes on to expound and says that God created human beings with emotions. And because they were in a perfect environment and in a perfect relationship with God, then every thought, every emotion, every feeling, every word, every action was in line with God's command and intention for their lives. According to Jill Howard and many other Christians, what we see here is a sense of of unity, a sense of harmony between humanity and God. They are reading Genesis 1 through 3 very literally, a literal Adam and Eve. And a literal Adam and Eve leads to a literal fall. According to the story that Jill Howard emphasizes, the serpent, who she identifies as Satan, tempts Eve, and in turn, Adam, and they end up disobeying God. And when they disobey God, then that harmony harmony that they had with God is, poof, gone. And instead, instead of being in this relationship with God, they are now enslaved to sin. What does that mean? What they believe What Jill believes, and many other Christians, is that because of the choice of Adam and Eve, which they take as two literal human beings, humans inherited a propensity to sin. And that inheritance, which they received from Adam and Eve, and over a millennial of generations, that inheritance that we receive corrupts every part of of our being. Think about that. Every part of who you are is now corrupted. No thought, word, or action, or feeling is immune from that sin. So that is why Jill says that our emotions are tainted by sin. You don't even have to do an action. Your emotions are tainted by sin. They have been impacted by sin. And so because of that, the self, who you are, 
needs to be rejected. Why? Because it's essentially bad and it cannot be trusted. Jill, along with others, will turn to texts such as Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25, where it says, If any person will come after me, again, these words being attributed to Jesus, if any person will come after me, Jesus, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Now, one way of understanding these verses is that Jesus is literally talking about a willingness to die. The other way that this text has often been used is a sense of dying to self. Why do you have to die to self? Because you are inherently evil. Every word, every thought, every action, every part of your being is considered flawed. So you may try to live a perfect life. It's no use. So people will use this text and say that what is required of God is that you have to deny yourself. You have to die to yourself. Jerry Falwell, back in 1982, said the following, Start your day off by ridding yourself of self-reliance. You can't rely on yourself. You can't trust yourself. Instead, you have to trust something or someone outside of yourself. That's why many individuals who feel the burden to go out and evangelize to lead people to Christ, to convince them of their sin. That's why for many, the first step in making new converts is to destroy their faith in themselves. You can't trust yourself. You can't believe in yourself. You have to believe in God. And by not trusting yourself, by not believing in yourself, then you must die to yourself. And then as you die to self, you become a new being. Now, think about that. You are this person, and then you die to a self, and that's often seen as accepting Jesus as your Savior. You die to self, you become something new. Well, if you become something new, does that mean you're sinless? Does that mean you'll never do anything wrong? No. So it's almost like, yes, you die to self, you become something new, but you can always waffle back and forth and go from being new to being old to being new to being old, and it leaves you in a pure form of chaos. Any type of confidence that you have in your own judgment is, is destroyed. You have to end up believing, not in yourself, but you have to believe in others. You see, you know, once you no longer have your own mind to rely on, if you're taught that all your thoughts are inherently evil, that you can't trust your thoughts, then it opens you up to accept everything that you are taught. Who are you? Who are you to make a judgment or to make a decision? Instead, if it's in the Bible, if it's being told to you that it's in the Bible, and this is how it ought to be understood— then your only choice is you have to believe other people or believe God. So where does that leave you? Where does that leave your sense of self? 
right after this break, we're going to talk about that. Now, again, remember that Jill, the therapist we've been talking about, believes in a literal Genesis 1 to 3. Along with many other Christians, Jill is not unique. She's not alone. But there's another way, one that was introduced to us by science. And that is, as human beings, we were not created according to Genesis 1 to 3 but rather we exist because of evolution. We are part of an ongoing process of evolving. We evolved as a species and we continue to adapt and evolve. Now, there are individuals who see God involved in this process in a wide variety of ways. Some believe in theistic evolution, that it was God's plan and that God is actively involved in that, Other people believe that God is energy. He's the force that drives evolution. So no matter what it is, this idea of evolution has within it this sense that human beings, homo sapiens, are not inherently good or evil. In evolution, there is no room for original sin. Why? Because it's part of our nature. It's who we are. We are not inherently good or evil. Rather, we are neutral. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't do wrong. It doesn't mean that we don't do evil. And it doesn't mean that we cannot do good. But within the core of who we are, we are not inherently either good or evil. Now, that's a major difference between the view that we talked about earlier. Instead, what it has in this sense of neutrality is the feeling of evolving and becoming actualized. A word that was in psychology and is tied very closely to Abraham Maslow, who is a psychologist, is the word self-actualization. So if on one side, we are seen as being self-denigrated because of a particular understanding of God, then this view of evolution and a different understanding of God emphasizes not self-denigration, but self-actualization. And by that we mean is that, and I'm quoting here, self-actualized people have an acceptance of who they are despite their faults and limitations, and experience to drive to be creative in all aspects of their lives. Another individual says, the process of self-actualization is becoming everything you are capable of becoming. Now, I understand there are Christians who are going to be uncomfortable with this particular view. 
but it is a view that is taking seriously not only the Bible, but also science, not only tradition based upon the past, but an ongoing sense of the future and more and more understanding of what it means to be a homo sapien. So what if you are one of those individuals who grew up believing that your sense of self needed to be set aside, that you need to die to self, that you couldn't trust yourself, you couldn't believe in yourself, your thoughts, your words, your emotions, your feelings, all of that was suspect. What happens if you begin to walk away from that? How do you move from self-denigration to self-actualization? How do you move forward? I want to, there's many other reasons, explanations for what you could do. But I want to highlight two. Number one, practice personal acceptance. And that can be hard. If all your life you have not been able to accept yourself, if the majority of your life you are feeling that you are not accepted by other people, if you really who you are, if you are true to who you are, the feeling that people will end up leaving you, so you have to have this masquerade, you have to have this mask on at all times, fear that if people really know who you are, they won't accept you. And the person perhaps we're most afraid of not accepting us is God. Self-actualization says that you learn to accept yourself, everything about yourself the shadow side of yourself, the, self, the side of yourself that you do not want other people to see. I mean, come on, let's be honest. We all, to a certain degree, are wearing different masks. It's what it means to be, apparently, a society. But occasionally, we let those masks slip off, those people that we have intimate relationships with, those people that we trust, If we can learn to be kinder and more accepting of ourselves, then maybe we won't worry as much about what other people think of us, and we won't have this fear of God, that God somehow, because of who we are, ends up rejecting us, and somehow we have to be saved so that God will accept us. Perhaps the thing we have to focus on as human beings, the thing that perhaps honors God, is that we accept who we are. Just plain simple. And not only accepting who you are, but accept the experiences in life. You know, someone said, and I can't remember where it was, the original quote, but this idea that that uh, they live your life with no regrets. Well, I call boo. I'm not, I was going to say worse than that. Um, <laughs> I don't believe that. There are things in my life that I do regret. But that doesn't mean I don't accept them. There are things in my life that I have done that I am ashamed of. I don't want to tell other people about it, but I have to accept them for myself. Second, way to become self-actualized is to live authentically. To live 
authentically. I know this ties in directly also with the idea of accepting. But when you live authentically, what that means is that you honor your truth. You honor your truth. And you avoid things like dishonesty, manipulation, or even denial of your needs. You live authentically. You be true to who you are first and foremost. So instead of living according to what other people say or suggest you should do, you follow the insight that is gained from your personal experiences and live according to the guidance of your heart. Now, again, I understand that we can't live in this pure world where we don't ever care about what other people think about us. I have not reached that point. Perhaps the fully self-actualized person does reach that point. But what I am doing is working, and I emphasize that word working, to live my life more authentically. Accepting who I am, and being true to who I am. It also, to live authentically, it means to be honest with yourself about your needs and desires. Instead of seeing your needs and desires as being sinful, you see them as being a core of your being. Now, how you act upon those needs and desires That is when it comes to your own personal values, your ethics, the principles by which you live your life. So a truly individual who is truly living authentically, that individual not only is concerned about their own needs and desires, but they respect the rights and needs of others. So it's not just completely egocentric. It's a concern for other people. You work to maximize your potential, not anyone else's. So, what have we learned today? The challenge we face in life is coming to peace with who we are. One aspect that can hurt that process of becoming the peace within oneself is a particular way of viewing Christianity, a particular beliefs that arise from Christianity. Now, there are some people who would say, well, that is Christianity. My question would be, who gets to define it? Who gets to define Christianity for you? Perhaps there's another way of looking at Christianity, Christianity that is not emphasizing self-denigration, but self-actualization. Now, I understand some people are going to listen to this and say, never listen to that guy again. Pure heresy, not Christian. I respect that. I disagree with you, but I respect that. But for those of you who have become disillusioned of Christianity, are looking for perhaps another way of living a Christian life. I would encourage you to ponder these ideas that I shared with you and ask yourself some questions about how you view yourself, how you see yourself. 
Are you willing to accept yourself fully? Are you willing to live authentically? Well, our time is up. And again, as usual, gracias. Thank you so much. Tip of the hat to you. Thank you for giving me your time. And I would like to hear your voice. Sometimes I get tired of just me and the mic. I would love to hear from you. I appreciate your insights, your questions, your suggestions. And so if you look at the email below, media at beatitudeschurch.org, email me there. I will, I will reply to you. I will respond to you. Whatever you're doing today, have a great day and stay safe out there. Take care.